podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The crowd cheer, but not for the home team. They were the non-white part of the crowd, the cage as it was called. And because of their treatment in their country, they decided to cheer for the opposition, which in itself must have made for an interesting noise. Often outside, having climbed up a tree just to watch the game, but eventually in the stadium, there was a boy, then a man, who could have helped South Africa defeat these teams and would have at least ensured that the entire crowd were cheering for the home side. He had learned to play on the streets and then moving into his father's cricket side, which makes him no different to millions of cricketers around the world. But the problem was why he was in that pen to begin with. It was because of his skin colour. So instead of starring for South Africa, Basil Dolavira sat in a cage as people around him cheered against them. Welcome to Double Century, a podcast on the history of cricket. I'm Jared Kimber. This is season two, and this is a different kind of season where we're looking at one big topic, the role of race within cricket. And so today we're looking at the story of Basil Dolavira. The stats of early Basil Dolavira are not as important as the story. We don't know what the facilities were like when he took his two nine-wicket hauls. And who knows what kind of bowling he faced when he hit seven sixes and one four in an eight-ball over. Or that match where he scored 225 in 75 minutes, while the rest of his team added only 11 more runs. What we do know is that Dolavira played cricket at a level where he was clearly so much better than everyone else on that field. In a normal cricket tale... These kinds of stories lead to him being picked by a regional team, playing domestic cricket, and then hopefully onto internationals. Instead, in his prime cricket years, Dolavira was still playing on matting wickets in what was a glorified club competition. There are great athletes who choose this, who prefer not to have the pressure of the big competitions. There are others who self-sabotage, and some that don't make it for many other reasons. But Dolavira had the burning passion to play against the best players in the world. And the closest he's got was when the West Indies were going to make an unofficial tour of South Africa under Frank Worrell, where they would play the best of the non-white players. When that tour did not go ahead, Dolavira started to think that this was it. Dominating non-white players on matting was the best he was ever going to be. So he used his magical batting hands on a printing press, considered giving up cricket altogether, while almost no one outside of Cape Town really knew who he was. Had this happened, and it was close, it would have been a crime against the game. You can see another reality where Dolavira just becomes another story like Crom Hendricks, who we talked about in episode one, a half-remembered tale of South Africa's racist past. But in 1960, Dolavira received a reply to a letter he had sent. Like the West Indian cricketers of old, Dolavira thought his chance to be paid as professional for the game he loved was via the English leagues, the Lancashire League. He had sent letters to people like John Arlett. That particular letter said, Dear Mr. Arlett, I dare say this is only a minor detail compared, I presume, to your other escapades, but I am sure that you would try your best and use your powerful assistance to help me. Arlett passed that letter on to many cricket clubs, including Middleton Cricket Club, who had signed Wes Hall as their overseas player, before he'd had to pull out, and so they'd made an offer, and they decided on Dolavira. The money was £450 for a year. £200 of that would go on his fare to get out there. Dolavira had a wife and a young kid, but like Leary Constantine before him, cricket was his hope of a better world. At first, though, it was a weirder life. He was shocked by seeing TVs, and he kept looking for lines or cues or parts of carriages that were for blacks and coloureds to stand in. 
When De La Vera first turned up to his cricket club in England, it was very weird. Here's his teammate, Paul Rocker. I remember when Basil first came to Middleton. It would be April, pre-season nets. He came into the dressing room and was introduced to us all. And after we'd said hello, he asked, where do I get changed? We said, well, in here with us, of course. For the first five games, it actually looked like Middleton might have made a mistake. Remember there was no, as we call it in analysis, nearest neighbour. Think about it this way. If you hire a Pakistani cricketer who has played test matches, you know that they are of a certain level because other Pakistani cricketers have been good. If you pick someone essentially from a club-level league in South Africa, you don't know how good he is. There's no one who has come before him. It's a risk. And Dolivero wasn't just replacing a normal cricketer for Middleton. It was Wes Hall. Berlus gritting his teeth. In comes Hall. What a huge one. And little Murray only just got a hand up to it. And now Sid Buller is talking at mid-on. Let's look there to Frank Worrell because bowlers are not allowed to bowl persistent bumpers. And he has to warn the captain who must warn the bowler. And the bowler is warned, and if he persists, he can be taken off. In 48 tests, Wes Hall took 192 wickets. He was the prototype of what modern fast bowlers have become. Tall, strong, athletic, fast. And he would bowl these legendary spells that just went on and on. And Hall wasn't just a great bowler. He looked like a great with every step. If you were wandering up to Middleton to watch your boys play a bit of cricket, Hall would have stood out in every single way. Skin colour, athleticism, skill, intelligence, pace, endurance. And at that point in his life, Hall already had 68 wickets at 22. He was already the real deal. Oh, and Hall wasn't just a normal human off the field either. He was a character. He was, in many ways, basically a stand-up comedian. People gravitated to him. And while Hall pulled out of playing for Middleton that season, there was a reason. He actually ended up playing for one of their rivals, Accrington Stanley, that very same year. Honestly, I don't think there's ever been a bigger signing coup in any sport in the whole history of Lancashire. So while Middleton's new recruits started slowly, you'd assume Hall, who took 100 wickets in 1960 alone, didn't. But Basil's runs did come. In four seasons, he made 3,667 runs and took 238 wickets. The press up there started comparing him to another all-rounder in the Lancashire Leagues, Garfield Sobers. That first year, Sobers scored more runs. Dolavira had the better average. It was now clear this wasn't a good club cricketer. This was a professional cricketer who was still clearly stuck well below his level. But at the very least now, he knew he had a career as a player, but he still had that desire to test himself. Cyril Washbrook was then running Lancashire. He wrote Dolavira off as a Saturday afternoon slogger. Maybe he meant it because Dolavira was an attacking batsman, but it's hard to read that back and not think that he probably wouldn't have said that for a local batsman, or perhaps even an Australian with that record. So instead of playing for Lancashire, Dolavira spent a year qualifying in Worcestershire, and then he played his first year in county cricket for them. But before he played in Worcestershire, he actually had a bit of first-class experience. In 61-62, he played a few first-class matches back in South Africa for an international 11. Ahead of him in the order was a bloke called Everton Weeks. Dolavira made 51 in that knock versus Rhodesia. He added a couple of wickets as well. He'd actually play a couple of games against Rhodesia, 
But in 63-64, he travelled to Pakistan as part of the Commonwealth Eleven, making 100 in Faisalabad. And in 1964, he was playing for the MCC at Lourdes, and he made two fifties. He also scored 100 against Oxford. Across 16 first-class matches in South Africa, England, and Pakistan, he was averaging 43 with a bat, and he would often find a couple of cheap wickets to add to it. But now it was time for county cricket, which was seen as a step up. In 1965, he started with Worcestershire as a county player, and in 31 matches, he made 1,691 runs at an average of 43. He took 38 wickets at 25. The Saturday afternoon slogger made six first-class hundreds that year. It was clear that at this point, Dolivera still hadn't found his level. He was destined to play higher up. But there was a really odd wrinkle in all of this. Dolivera played all this cricket in England while lying about his age. He was born in either 1935, 33, 31, some reports 1927. Dolivera knew his chance of getting much more than a league contract would have been far harder if anyone knew his real age, so he just lied. He wasn't the first hugely talented player of his era to lie about his age to get opportunities that he would have received automatically if not for the colour of his skin. Satchel Paige, the legendary black American pitcher, was thought to be the best pitcher outside the majors when black players weren't allowed to play. Paige had been dominating batters since 1924, but in the 1940s he knew that there might be an opportunity for him to go up to the higher level. So not only did he lie about his age, but he also looked after himself incredibly well. He would turn up to take big money local deals, pitch for an innings or two, smile at everyone, hype up the crowd, and then head off to the next town, keeping his arm fresh. Even when Jackie Robinson was picked as the first back player in Major League Baseball, it took until the next year for Satchel to play. At this point, he was 24 years into a pro career, and he was, well, somewhere around 40, 42, or maybe even as old as 48. So when Dolivera made his test debut, he was possibly as old as 39, and yet he started his career incredibly well. 27, 76, 54, 88, 7, 4, 109, 24 not out, 33, 59, 81 not out. After 10 tests, Dolivera was averaging 50. And a great stroke. Again, Hamada were delightfully off the back foot. Four glorious runs to Dolivera. Four. That's that shot of Dolivera's. That is a lovely shot. That's four runs. England toured the West Indies in 1967-68. It was there that Dolivera had his first real slump. Charlie Griffith and Wes Hall played in that series, but it wasn't the express pace that worried him. He failed against pretty much all the bowlers. He made only 150 in the test. Dolivera struggled with the pressure at this point. He took to drinking and partying, two things he hadn't done much of before. And some of the West Indians called him a sellout for playing in what was essentially a white team. It's also worth noting that while he failed in tests, he did great in the first class games, averaging 40 for the tour. But perhaps because of this one bad tour, all the drinking, the coverage on him changed a little bit. And at the end of the 68 summer, there was supposed to be an English tour to South Africa. But before then, there was an Ashes. Dolivera worked hard on his batting coming into the 1968 season. But in county cricket, he managed a bunch of starts with scattered failures. And he had a best of 4 for 40 with the ball. It turned out that his good overall test record was enough to keep him in the side for the first test against Australia. They batted first and made 357. Dolivera bowled 25 overs, 11 maidens, went for 38 runs and took one wicket. His economy rate was 1.5 runs and over. 
The rest of the bowlers on his side went at above three. England struggled in reply, making 165. Dolavira made nine. Australia added 220 more in their second knot. And for some reason, Dolavira only bowled five overs, taking one for seven. That one was important, though. It was Bill Laurie. Bill Laurie averaged 47 in test cricket. England needed 413 to win. Pretty much a nominal total. Dolavira entered the innings at 105 for five. England would more than double their total from there, though, making 253. 61 of those extra runs were by his teammates. Dolavira added 87, not out. Obviously, England lost, but Dolavira's innings weirdly wasn't talked up. He had made runs when England were going to lose the game was the narrative that was used. But actually, he put on an 81-run partnership with Bob Barber when they were still a chance of taking the game deep. And Alan Knott, one of the greatest wicketkeeper batsmen of all time, was due in next. Oh, and the wicket was considered unsatisfactory. So he made runs on an uncovered, unsatisfactory fourth innings wicket when no one else in his team could, but it wasn't seen as a good knock. If you go back to the wisdom reports, you get this. Five wickets fell for 105 before Barber and Dolavira made a stand and saw the total to 152 at the close. The partnership realized 80, but on the last morning, Dolavira alone worried the Australians. He demonstrated the value of a straight bat and drove cleanly. But with the issue of foregone conclusion, the value of his belated effort was difficult to appraise. England needed more of him as an all-rounder, and he had failed as a first-change bowler. Now, there's nothing in his test record at this point to suggest that he should have ever bowled first change, and there's no way he should have been picked among the four frontline bowlers. But his first innings bowling certainly kept pressure on Australia. I mean, he bowled a maiden almost every other over. And in the second innings, he was bowling very well and was taken out of the attack. It's weird that there was no mention of this short second inning spell. On the face of it, from a batting all-rounder, how is two for 45 that bad? For you non-mass nerds out there, that's an average of 22.5 per wicket. And even in this kind of low-scoring game, the average wicket in this match fell at 24.87. He was below average. He was, well, above average, but he was good. He bowled okay for what he was, a batting all-rounder. Now, Basil Dolivere did look innocuous when he bowled, undoubtedly. He may have been born a dashing Kate Kellard street cricketer, but by the time he played tests for England, he was every much the county cricket trundler. But it's still hard to look at those numbers and not think that something was missing. And it wasn't just Wisden. Many cricket writers were questioning his place in the team at this point. And it's not that it was a bad question in itself. They were cricket writers, and this was cricket. But something never quite added up. And whether they knew it or not, there was a bigger question they should have been looking at. But those are questions that cricket writers and cricket in general hadn't been good at asking before. Thank you for listening to Double Century, the podcast on the history of cricket. If you like this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe. Also, any way that you could share it really helps us. We are an independent production. And if you want to help support us more, we have a Patreon in the show notes. And a huge thank you to those who already donate to us. Double Century is a team effort. Nick McCorriston is our producer and editor. Abhishek Mukherjee and Bertie Moores are our fact checkers. And the series is written and narrated by me. Jared Kimber. Thank you for listening. If you are listening to this podcast, you may also enjoy my other show, Red Inca. It's a podcast about stories and issues in cricket, told by the experts who have followed it or the people who've lived them. We've had Dan Norcross talking about cricket commentary, Wright Thompson on his Sachin Tendulkar piece, and a bunch of cricketers like Andrew Belburney, Tamal Mill, Sean Masood, and Alex Hartley. 
It's a weekly podcast with a different theme for every show. Sports Social Podcast Network.